Welcome to Distressed Situations, a Reed Smith podcast. On this podcast, we cover current issues in financial restructuring over a wide variety of industries. I'm Keith Arzeda, a partner in Reed Smith's Global Restructuring and Insolvency Group, and I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. Whether your company is a financial institution or in industry, we hope our commentary will be useful in managing the risks associated with distress. If you have any questions about our topics, feel free to contact our speakers. Welcome to the latest episode of Distressed Situations. This is Keith Arzeda, and I'm here today with Stephen Fleming. Very proud to have him on the podcast today. He works with PwC, and he is presently the U.S. Business Recovery Services Leader. We are very glad to have you, Steve. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here. So today, we are going to talk about managing cash and liquidity concerns for businesses that are in distress. And Steve has spent the better part of his career working in these types of conditions and situations. He and I have worked together on projects in the past, and I felt very comfortable bringing him on the program today. Before we get started on the meat of the program, Steve, uh, what do you do for fun? Well, that's an interesting question, uh, one I wasn't prepared for. I'd say lately I have been obsessed with perfecting my authentic Neapolitan style pizza. So if you're ever in in my neck of the woods and and you're hungry and you like Neapolitan style pizza, feel free to come on over. All right. So let me ask you some detailed questions about this. Do you make your own dough? Absolutely. And, and, And how many hours in advance of cooking the pizza are you letting the dough start to rest? That's a great question. It sounds like you make pizza yourself. So, so yesterday, and I, I experiment with this, both in how long I, I let the dough ferment before I, I cook it, and then how well I, how long I take it out in advance. I would say a minimum of four hours, minimum. And I, I kind of like the six-hour window. It just makes the dough a lot easier to work with. Well, I have to tell you, at the Arzeda house, the sweet spot is 48 hours. Out, out of unrefrigerated. I'm sorry, no. In the refrigerator for 48 hours. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I thought you meant the, the resting before before you actually cook it. You know, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. I've been experimenting with the 24, 48 hours, and I haven't quite settled in on, on my preference yet, but I'll, I'll, I'll try the 48-hour method next time I, I make some dough. Give it some thought, and then maybe we should have a separate podcast on types of flour. We'll Caputo, save the audience on this. Caputo Blue Double Zero. There's, there's no, there's no debate there. That's, <laughs> that's, that's not a long podcast. Excellent, excellent. Okay, Steve. All right, let's get to business. The topic is managing cash and liquidity. I find sometimes it's helpful to level set when you're talking about the topic of managing cash and liquidity. What is it that that you're referring to? Well, that's a great question. And I guess the way I I think about it, you know, at its core, cash management is about ensuring a business has sufficient cash on hand to satisfy debts as they come due. Now, that sounds very basic. However, it can get complex really fast, particularly if the business has a lot of subsidiaries or, you know, operates in, in multiple geographies. Give us some examples on the contours of the things that you're going to consider when you're considering liquidity and the variables that that might come into play. Sure. So I think it goes without saying that businesses want to manage their cash 
in the most efficient manner possible. And that includes minimizing borrowing costs. It includes maximizing returns on, on excess cash for companies that are fortunate enough to have excess cash on hand. Um, it also involves uh, complexities around moving cash around legal entities in a tax efficient manner, particularly if the business operates in, in multiple taxing jurisdictions. So that, that brings a whole set of complexities. It's not just you know logging onto your banking portal and, and, and moving money around. There's actually a lot of planning and a lot of consideration that, that needs to go into it. And so I want to start kind of dealing with our discussion and directing it towards the distressed point of view, right? Which is why, why we're talking about it. But let's start by talking about some of the things that healthy companies should be doing. And then how do cash management and liquidity concerns and techniques and, and management change as a company becomes distressed? Now, I'm asking a really large question, and we're going to have to take this into bite-sized pieces, but sure. maybe you can start and give us some general thoughts around that. Sure. So, uh, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think any company wakes up every day and sets as their goal their, their cash planning in, in particular. It's usually a derivative of an overall business plan and financial forecast. So, I would assume that most companies, uh, most well-run companies, have a you know, pretty sophisticated FP&A, their finance planning and analysis teams that drive their their business forecast, and those are typically done, in my experience, on an annual basis, you know, broken out by month, and then I it'd be common to see then after the you know the annual plan. There's usually a three or five year financial plan that's tacked onto it. So, you know, healthy companies, distressed companies, well-run businesses, you manage to financial targets that are developed starting with a strategic plan. There's usually a second step on that equation where those projections are then converted into a cash management plan. And that's typically done by the treasury function within the finance organization. Now, big, large, you know, global healthy companies, in my experience, typically don't manage cash daily or weekly. It's usually a, a monthly or sometimes even quarterly. And depending on the business, they may use what's referred to as the, the, the indirect method of, of cash flow, cash flow analysis. And what that means for you non-accountants out there is they they start with their budgeted profit, their budgeted net income for the year, and they reconcile back out the items that affect cash in order to come up with, with a, a cash flow forecast. As we dissect this a little bit further and we start talking about the stress situations, in that world, we almost always operate in what's referred to as the direct cash flow method, where you start off with cash in the door, and then you try to, in as, as much detail as possible, itemize all the different line items of cash that goes out the door. So the, the topic of the program is cash management and liquidity. And I think that was an excellent discussion of cash management. What are the elements of liquidity that you consider? And let's, let's not talk about healthy companies as much here. Let's talk really drill into distress. What are the elements of liquidity? Uh, beyond just cash 
for a distressed company? Well, first and foremost, in terms of how I think about it, it would be access to capital. And that could take multiple you know, forms. You, you could have a commitment letter from a financial sponsor, or you could have a you know, letter of credit or, or a revolving credit facility from a third party that enables a company to draw down cash as in, and when they need it. So I, w- I would say you know, most companies have some form of, of revolving credit facility, and, and that kind of ties back to the comment I made earlier about managing cash in an efficient manner. The reason revolvers exist is that they're there when you need them, and, and when you don't need them, you you can pay them back or not draw down on them, and you're not you know, paying high high interest costs as part of any company's toolkit of you know your cash management tools. So, what are your thoughts around AR and vendor supply agreements? Well, I mean, now we're, we're getting into the drivers of cash and, and the cash conversion cycle. At its, I guess, most basic, you, you know, a well-run or even a distressed company would, have, would, of course, want to reduce the amount of days outstanding of, of their receivables. So I, I like to use extremes to, to make the point. You know, you get paid cash in advance or cash on delivery. You don't have any receivables. If you're extending your customer's terms 30, 60, 90 days, then that needs to be financed. The other side of that equation is how you manage your payables, how quickly you're paying your vendors. Again, if if you can structure a situation where you're being paid earlier by your customers and you're you know, paying your suppliers 30, 60, 90 days thereafter, then I know we're talking about the stress companies here, but I can't help but talk about for a second Apple because they're they're probably the best example that you know you order your iPhone or your your iMac through them on their website, you pay them at the time you're ordering it, and and sometimes it, it's then made you know within 24 or 48 hours, so they have the cash in advance, and then they pay their vendors 90 or 120 days later. So they have what's called negative working capital. Most companies have positive working capital, which is when your receivables are greater than your payables. Having negative working capital is a good thing because that's actually a source of cash or a source of financing available to a a company. Yeah, I like to refer to that. And believe me, I am no accountant, but I refer to that as the collect fast, pay slow method. That's exactly right. And just as an aside, the cash conversion cycle, is that a Steve Fleming topic or a concept or is that a, is that a well-known concept? Well, I'd love to trademark it, but it, it's unfortunately a, a pretty well-known term and, and you know, widely used across the consulting industry. And it, it's a fancy way of saying, Keith, exactly what you just said, which is how quickly you turn your products in, into cash. And then on the payable side, how you know how long you can hold on to that cash before you you need to use it for to pay your your vendors. That's as referred to as the you know the, the cash uh, conversion cycle. Okay, now I'm going to get to a very puzzling question for me, and I, I, I distinctly remember a meeting very early on in my career 
And I was there with several people around a typical boardroom table. And one senior partner speaking to another senior business executive says, okay, when are we going to get the 13-weeker? And I had no idea what they were talking about. So I nodded as if I knew, only to ask the question, what is the 13-weeker? Can you tell me about what that is and why it's 13 weeks? <laughs> sure. That's a great question. And I remember the first time I, I heard the term, I didn't know what it was either, nor did I understand why it was 13 weeks versus 14 or, or 12. And I I can now say I know the answer. <laughs> so the, the reason, uh, what, what the 13-weeker is, it's commonly referred to as a 13-week cash budget. And it's typically prepared on a, on a weekly basis. And sometimes when you peel back the onion, there may be two weeks of, of that 13-weeker forecasted out on a daily basis, but it's, it's presented on a weekly basis for 13 weeks. And it's also commonly rolled forward so that when one week passes, you forecast out what would have been week 14 and you continually roll it forward. The reason it's it's 13 weeks, it's somewhat arbitrary, but it happens to be one quarter. So you know businesses tend to manage their earnings or manage their, their financials, what they convey to third-party stakeholders on a quarterly basis. And 13 weeks would be one quarter in a financial year. So that's that's why it's a quote 13 weeker versus 12 or 14 because it corresponds to one quarter. So the interesting thing that I've found in dealing with the 13 week cash flow forecast is oftentimes I'm dealing with loan documents or court filings or reporting periods that are all done by the month. And that doesn't necessarily work out to a 13-week cash flow forecast, which is done on a week-by-week basis. What do you do to reconcile those two? Well, they don't always need to be reconciled. And I, you know, I think the 13-weekers just sort of evolved into the industry standard. I mean, I've seen lots of bankruptcy filings in, in recent times where for strategic purposes, they, the debtors, when they file their their motions and attach exhibits, they may only show three weeks, six weeks, or, or 10 weeks. And that's oftentimes very intentional. I've also seen more than 13 weeks presented. So I, so I for one, don't always see the need to reconcile it. And, and part of the reason ties back to what I mentioned earlier about the indirect versus direct methods of forecasting cash. So when a company presents its financial statements, its income statement, its balance sheet, and its statement of cash flows, those are typically prepared on what's called an accrual basis of accounting. And that statement of cash flows is typically in the form that's referred to as the indirect method. When preparing a 13-weeker or a 13-week cash flow, it is always on the direct method of cash forecasting, and it always starts with cash collections minus disbursements, which is you know, very simple to follow. Sometimes it's more detailed than not, and that will not reconcile, even if it was the same exact period, like even if you were taking July 1st to September 30th, that cash forecast will not reconcile to those accrual financial statements that are, 
are prepared on a, on a different basis of accounting. Nice, nice. You're coming into, I'm going to draw a little hypothetical for you, Steve. You're coming into a new company that is seeking your advice on managing cash and liquidity. You come in and there's a period of time where you sit around the conference table with the CFO, maybe the controller, maybe the CEO, maybe some other folks, and you're going to ask some questions. Keep in mind, we're now in the distressed world. Uh, What are some of the questions you ask around things like the number of vendors, credit terms, cash on delivery, alternative suppliers? What are the things that you're thinking about when you have those conversations at the beginning of an engagement? Well, I think you you hit the nail on the head in terms of what would be first on my list, which was I'd want to understand what is the current accounts payable by vendor. And I want that then cut in terms of who are the company's most critical vendors. And, and that would give me some context of who do we absolutely need to pay or, or, or management or, or, or put on some type of payment program? Who could we replace if sometimes it's possible to, to swap out a, a vendor and, uh, and enter into new terms? So that's a really critical starting point in terms of your due diligence that you would need to understand the situation. And then I'd want to marry that up with how much money do I have to, to spread around and how long is it going to last? I would maybe dial this back two steps and say, when I have that first meeting, what I'm trying to understand is what type of runway do we have to work with? Are we talking about days? Are we talking about weeks? Are we talking about you know months or quarters? And and depending on the answer to that, that's really going to dictate how hard I look at any one lever. Because if we're talking about days versus weeks and, and months, that's one one extreme. And if we're talking about quarters, then maybe I don't need to get so granular in, into some of those areas right out of the gate. So I want to drop a little footnote in the discussion here in the, in the truly distressed situation. There's oftentimes a need or desire to stretch out the payables, find those vendors or those creditors in the capital stack that can be pushed out or not paid or uh, payments delayed. This is an area of the law that we're not going to talk about today, but in terms of footnoting the conversation, I want to make it a very real point that that's something that companies, boards of directors, officers need to consider very carefully and and only do that in a knowing fashion with a real plan in place rather than just allowing debts to grow over time without a plan for paying them back. And there's several different monikers for that, several different ways to talk about it whether it's breach of fiduciary duty, deepening insolvency, misrepresentations of various kinds. So, so my, my point is, is that in the cash management cycle, in the preservation of liquidity cycle, there is an opportunity in some circumstances to pay trade debt on extended terms or to find those creditors that might accept alternative repayment terms. And there's a lot of issues that go along with that. Would you agree with that, Steve? Yeah, and I like the way you categorize that or characterize that rather. And, and, and generally the way, and I'm certainly not going to go anywhere near those, those legal points that you just mentioned because you, you addressed them very well, in my opinion. 
The way I think about this more broadly is how you manage your stakeholders. And from my perspective, one, knowing your numbers and, and two, regularly communicating and, and keeping your stakeholders informed generally goes a long way in buying credibility and in, in generating goodwill with, with your counterparties. And conversely, when companies keep their stakeholders in the dark or they don't have uh, a good handle on their numbers or can't answer basic questions around cash, liquidity, timing of, of payment, that's when the stakeholders, including trade creditors, lose confidence and no longer support the company in terms of either extending new credit, shipping goods, or whatever it is that that counterparty and that trusted business partner is, is asked to do. So it, it all starts with knowing your numbers, communicating, and as you said, having a plan. Yeah, it's uh, it almost feels like sometimes most things in our world go back to kindergarten, treat others as you'd like to be treated. Nobody likes to be kept in the dark. Communicating with your stakeholders can oftentimes be the difference between a successful resolution and one that turns ugly. So listen, Steve, I really appreciate you coming on today. In particular, I am grateful to know that you are a pizza aficionado. I look forward to having you to my place for a pizza and possibly going to yours for the same. Thank you for having me. And, and anytime, look forward to, uh, I, I'm going to take you up on that offer to do a, a podcast. Maybe we'll even do like a YouTube video. There's lots of them out there. I would love it. I would love it. And by the way, uh, I cook on the big green egg. What do you cook on? I have a Traeger. All right. We'll go Traeger versus BGE and see how it goes. Well, my pizza though, if you're asking how I cook on my pizza, I have an uni, Unicota 16. You got to get oh. up to 950 degrees. Oh, wow. That's far more sophisticated than me. Okay. I'm going to look into this and, uh, <laughs> and I'll report back. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Steve. Distressed Situations is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McCardle. For more information about Reed Smith's restructuring and insolvency practice, please email distressedsituations at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, ReedSmith.com, and on our social media accounts at ReedSmithLLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.